So what do you say to people who say, well, the rush, there are many Russians who want to speak out, but they are afraid of dealing with their police. They are afraid of going to jail. What, what is your response to that? I don't care about what they are afraid of, because I am afraid that the bomb will fall into the house where my son is staying. And that is nowhere near to the level of, of, of fear that they can experience in Russia. If all the Russians go to the streets to protest, there will not be enough police to take them down. But they're not doing that because the absolute majority of them are actually supporting this regime. That was Ukrainian parliamentarian Ina Subsoon, deputy head of the political party Golos, and she's this week's guest on Black Diplomats. I'm your host, Terrell Starr. I met up with Ina recently in a cafe in the Padel neighborhood of Kyiv. She's one of the most outspoken members of parliament who's been going on national television asking for international support for Ukraine, which has been fighting Russia's invasion since February 24th. We had a long ranging conversation about military aid, what's it like being an opposition leader, working with President Zelensky and his party, her views about Russia, international support, as well as some other issues concerning the war. Without further ado, let's start the show. Thank you very much for taking time out of your day to come and talk to me. Obviously, um, you're a member of parliament and you are um, have a lot on your plate. Um, so before I start any conversation, I always ask people about themselves. So how are you feeling? Well, uh, first of all, thanks for having me. Uh, I'm feeling okay. Uh, that is a strange for you know uh, wording, but uh, I think I'm feeling better than I was the first week of the war, because the first week of the war everyone just feels confused and we don't know what is happening and we don't know how to see and to read the situation. But right now we are now understanding what is happening better. It is extremely scary. It is extremely terrifying. I hardly slept last night because you must have heard the the explosions all over the city. I think that was one of the toughest nights since the beginning of the war. But I think at this point, everyone just knows that this is our job. This is what we need to do. And everyone is just focused on uh, what they need to be doing. So I think uh, in that sense, when you know what you need to be doing, it is better compared to the confusion of the first two, three days of the war when people didn't know what to do and how they can be of use. Well, apart from the people in the army who knew what to be doing, you know. But right now it is, um, yeah, I think I feel better when I know what I need to be doing. So I just keep on doing what I have to. There are many questions I will ask you about the um, the international response, the Ukrainian military, and how you're helping to run the country. But um, you know, just as a lawmaker who is legislating in the war, how has this war and the violence that happened how has this impacted you personally, and how does that inform? how you help to lead this country against Putin's aggression? Well, I will tell you this. Um, in terms of legislation, there was some legislation that needed to be passed. But overall, uh, since we declared the martial law the first three hours after the first explosions in Kiev, uh, the, the, this, the legal situation in the country has changed a lot. Because during the martial law, of course, there are many more... Um, power that are held in the office of the president, which is making perfect sense, you know. Uh, we did have to pass some legislation, uh, like regarding the economic situation, then also regarding uh, people uh, functioning in this war situation, like um, 
yeah, how can you um, control the situations on the streets and so on and so forth. But overall, I would say that our bigger function right now is not that of legislation, but of political function, of showing that we are holding, we are standing strong. Every time we're getting together as a parliament to pass some legislation, we're not holding long debates anymore. We uh, hold informal consultations before the, the, the we gather in the parliament. Then we just adopt it very fast, like 30 minutes for to you know to adopt all the legislation, which has again been pre pre approved before, but we just need formally to adopt it. But I think the biggest importance is that we actually get together and we show to the people here in Ukraine, but also to the international community that we're here, we are not leaving, we are standing still. And I think this political function right now is even more important than legislative function of the parliament. And that is why uh, the parliament is is doing its job of, of showing to the people that we are here with you. And uh, we are showing that to the international community as well. And I think that is our more important job as, as, as members of parliament right now than that of legislating specific issues. Of course, those are important as well, but not to the same extent. Because every time we get the emergency sessions and we get them ran like relatively once in a week, Every time after that, we're getting so many messages from people saying thank you so much for being here. Thank you for not leaving and so on. That I can see how that is important to the people all over Ukraine, but also abroad. So, so I think that is this symbolic value is, is also crucially important here. It's ironic because, you know, when a lot of people, um, I, I often say a lot of times Ukraine is in the news for many of the wrong reasons at times. But what we see right now, even in this war, your the, the democracy and, and and the government is running, right? And that which is yeah. remarkable, and it's ironic given that uh, Putin said doesn't even recognize the government. Says that it needs, you know, the 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 country needs a a power change, yeah. and so. But he doesn't say that anymore. That much, frankly speaking, I think even in his psychotic brain, he came to realize that uh, it's actually a functioning state. Uh, which turned out to be a surprise to many of us as well. You have to remember that I'm representing the opposition party. I have many criticism about the current government, which we shall get back to after the victory. But as of right now, that doesn't matter anymore. What matters is that unlike Russians, we actually have a functioning state and it is a functioning democracy. I mean, not without its flaws, but we do have open elections. We do have uh, open debates. We do have uh, different media that express different opinions. Uh, again, not perfect. Again, I can talk about corruption here and all, but it is still a functioning democracy. You know, the very basic minimum of having the change of government, having open debates, uh, having a freedom to, to, you know, to, to speak, that is something that Russians do not have. And that is something that we keep on to preserve here in Ukraine. So I think that is something that uh, even Putin now realizes, because you see their rhetoric has changed a lot. At the beginning, they were saying a lot, like, let's uh, make the change of government here. The government is illegitimate. We need to, the regime change. Well, the regime change didn't happen because we are holding strong and we are holding to the regime that we have chosen for ourselves. And we have the luxury of choosing who is ruling the country, unlike the Russians who do not have that luxury. So I think even Putin came to realize that. Uh, I think it was a surprise to him as well. I think he was, uh, to a very big extent, victim to his own propaganda machine, because I do think that uh, he was actually believing all that uh, you know uh, BS that he was feeding to his own people, like that uh, they don't have uh, uh, 
that they don't have uh, free elections here, that they don't, that, that the majority of people actually hate the government and so on and so forth. Like right now, they're seeing that actually the only person that the whole Ukraine hates right now is Putin himself. That, right. And so, you know, yesterday, their government said that we are scaling back our operations around Kyiv, and we all know what that meant. Obviously, they're you're not scaling back, they're losing, and the Ukrainians are fighting back against them. And these negotiations, it, it's impossible to trust anything that the Kremlin says, but how do, how do you all navigate these negotiations? And because one of one of the conversations that we hear is that maybe Ukraine will say we will be a non- um, will be a neutral yeah. country and we will not seek NATO. What do you think about that? Well, first of all, a, a short comment on de-escalation. Uh, since, uh, like, for anyone who has been in Kyiv during last night, we can say for sure that we did not hear de-escalation. Very what loud. we heard, exactly. Yeah. It, it was the loud, probably the most loud night that we have had since the beginning of the war. I, I mean, I was not here all nights, but but from, from what I've heard from other people is that that was the loudest night we have had. It was very many explosions. And we could assume that some of that was Ukrainian army fighting back, particularly in the Northwest and, and kicking Russians out. But we also know that they set uh, many missiles which have been hit by the air defense system here in Kiev. So that is the escalation for you. And that is just, you know, uh, the understanding of to what extent you can trust those people who say that they will de-escalate and then, then they set the missiles, in the, you know, into Kiev. Luckily, from what we know, no, there was no major damage done because of their defense system functioning properly around Kiev. But generally, that is not de-escalation. That is them recognizing that they probably shouldn't have even tried to capture Kiev because that failed dramatically. But also, you know, so that is not de-escalation. That is them probably coming a bit closer to the realities of the war situation where they, they realize that, you know, having the troop, the number of troops that they have around Kyiv is simply just in no world that would be enough to capture. I mean, they did lots of damage. I don't mean to undermine that. They, they, they destroyed the city of Sofirpin, of Bucha, but they're leaving not because of the showing goodwill or, you know, for building trust, as they were saying. They are leaving because they were losing here and they didn't have a way to, you know, to regain control over the city. But also, I think that they are making this strategic move uh, of uh, um, taking the troops around Kiev, where they have no chance of, you know, proceeding any closer to the city. I I'm absolutely sure we shall see the same troops in Donbass. Because I'm absolutely sure that is where they will focus their attention. They need some sort of victory by, uh, by May 9th when they will have a whole big parade in Russia. And that is just for you to understand the psychology of that people. They need to, you know, to pretend that they're winning. They need to keep on pretending that they're this big power. Potemkin's village, right? Precisely. Yeah, yeah, precisely. So, so, and that is what they're trying to do. And they want to, and you see that their rhetoric is changing a lot right now. They're saying like, oh, we are now protecting the people of, of Donbass. Well, people of Donbass are very, you know, they're saying that they are liberating them. There are many jokes around uh, social media that they are liberating those people from their houses and their lives and, and, and their schools and, and hospitals, you know. So, so, but their rhetoric is definitely changing a lot right now. Uh, and I think that is partially the recognition by their side that they are not capable of, of capturing a four million uh, city, which was, you know, a non-starter to begin with. Uh, so, so in terms of those negotiations, that is exactly how we take them is that we cannot trust them 
We cannot trust Putin. He will be lying every single time he's opening up his mouth. And uh, we just cannot trust whatever they promise in us. And of course, this issue of neutrality is a tricky one because I've heard from so many people uh, saying that maybe you should agree to that. And I will be honest with you when I say that this is not an issue that is taken uh, you know, easily by the parliament. There are many debates internally about that uh, for a simple reason. In 2014, when the war started actually, I will remind everyone that the war didn't start in 2022, it started in 2014, uh, we were officially a neutral state. That was part of our constitution. It said that we are a neutral, non-aligned state, and then we are uh, not planning to join any, you know, defense alliance. And and he annexed Crimea and started the war in Donbass, which killed 14,000 people in eight years. So now when he's selling us that if you are neutral, you are safe. Well, I'm sorry, I, I remember very well what was happening in 2014, and so does the rest of the country. So, so that is why trust in this neutral status, I would say, is a non-starter here in Ukraine. We do need some tough security guarantees. Probably they can be provided in other way except for NATO membership, but I'm rather skeptical about that because from what, because from what we understand, and I don't see a single other mechanism of collective security except for NATO in the world right now. People are talking about the 1994 Budapest Accord. Precisely. You know, and saying that when we gave up our nuclear weapons, then that was supposed to assure our safety. But my my question, my follow-up question to that is, if knowing that history, is there a possibility, you know, as you suggested, um, that you would have something that is similar to NATO assurances, for example, um, some document legally binding the United States, the European Union, NATO to you. You know, we will uh, we will not pursue Ukraine for membership, and vice versa. But if Russia does attack and violate on these terms, then we will defend Ukraine in that case. Would that language be something that you would be open to? I mean, we have to look at the specific document, but um, again. We are rather skeptical, given this 1994 the Budapest Memorandum. This is a huge trauma here in Ukraine. And that is why if you talk to regular Ukrainians, what they will tell you is that they feel betrayed because they did trust that the Budapest Memorandum would protect us. So we, we all did. I mean, we know that it was not very well written in terms of uh, legal norms. Yeah, because it wasn't legally binding, exactly. right? Yeah, precisely. it wasn't legally binding. Precisely, precisely. So potentially we can discuss something that can be, you know, more legally binding. But again, I still believe that the, the strongest guarantee is NATO membership because that is what is legally binding for many, many countries. But but what we need is, is okay, let, let's put it this way. Uh, if not NATO membership per se, then we need the tough guarantee, exactly like you described that, that in case we are attacked, then the United States, the United Kingdom and other guarantors of our security will not keep on telling us, oh, we don't want any any uh, you know conflict with Russia. They will say, okay, then we intervene and then we get our troops here. That is the kind of language that we want. And that is the kind of support that we want. And that is the kind of guarantees that we are seeking right now. What is concerning here is that within those talks that we have heard so far, uh, there was this issue that one of the guarantors would be Russia, which is, I'm sorry, ridiculous in itself. Like, what sort of guarantor is that? 
like they're killing us right now as we speak as we are trying to make that deal so so this is a non-starter here that is for sure like we can think about like other states western allies uh, being our uh, our um, uh, guarantors of our security but not russia russia should have a different status with it any of those um, agreements that might come out of this of these talks um so i think that that is important to understand that any deal where russia would be given the same status at the united kingdom as the united states well that would be just silly to to accept that so what so now russia would not accept that right because it's paternalistic anyway right it's a, they have a very paternalistic attitude yeah. um yeah, to a very paternalistic attitude. And so do you see um, any signs that Russia by May 9th will either withdraw completely or significantly um, stop their, offen their military offensive? I will say this. Again, predicting the, the actions of a crazy man is, is a very ungrateful job. But uh, I think... Uh, the most rational thing for them to do, and again, we have to realize they're not completely rational, but the most rational thing for them to do is to try to get some victory in terms of regaining control of the whole Donbass region. And I think that is why they are removing the troops from Kiev and Chernihiv right now, like slightly removing. I wouldn't say that they, they are withdrawing them completely, but, but moving some of those so that they move those can move those troops to Donbass region and try to regain control there. So that by uh, May 9th, they have this victory that we have regained control over Donbass. Um, so I don't think that their goal is to, you know, uh, to show goodwill in terms of ending this conflict. And I do not believe that they will withdraw uh, voluntarily. I'm, well, unfortunately, I will say this. I do not believe in a diplomatic solution to this war overall. I, I'm actually afraid to say this, but I think that the only solution can be brought up militarily. And that is by, by kicking their asses and kicking them out of our country. So my question to you on that respect is, in America, what many people are concerned about is being pulled into the war with the nuclear power. So the many people are saying, you know, they talk about the no-fly zone, mm -hmm. you know, they discuss the no-fly zone and say that, because the no-fly zone also requires, um, you know, bombing, you know, raids yeah. into other countries in order to stop their, you know, their missile defense systems. And so when people say that they don't want to be dragged into the war, um, how are you responding to those those concerns or those you know those those conversations? Well, first of all, a short comment on the issue of the no-fly zone that we have been asking for so much from the very early days of war. Of course, that was the biggest issue to us because you you are living here in Kiev now. You understand how scary that is. Like every night you go to bed and you never know whether the bomb will not fall onto your head. Ten minutes away, a ten to fifteen minute walk yeah. from my place. A, a missile or a debris okay. hit a building exactly. and it killed people. So, no, I understand completely. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. That, that is very scary. And this this thought of... Uh, and this is... It's not just in Kiev. And actually, in Kiev, it is probably a little bit better because the air defense system around Kiev is actually better than, like, in Kharkiv. Because I was raised and born in Kharkiv and I was getting many messages from people in Kharkiv in the first weeks of the bombardments. They were so terrified of what was happening there. And actually, when, when I was going on, on uh, international media and speaking, I was saying, like, look at what they're doing to Kharkiv. And, and I was speaking on behalf of the people who were texting me and saying constantly, like, Ina, please tell to the world of what he is doing to us. So that is extremely scary. And that is why we were asking for, for the no-fly zone. 
But we were never asking for foreign troops to come and ensure an off-fly zone here. What we were asking for would be the, uh, give us the weapon, the equipment, and we shall operate the no-fly zone ourselves. And that is a huge difference because, well, technically that would mean that there are no, you know, NATO troops on the ground. So technically Putin would not use that as an argument for engaging into war with NATO states. However, so, so again, we were not asking for NATO troops on the ground ever. Maybe peacekeeping missions we can discuss. But again, that was not the, our biggest concern was give us those damn fighter jets that we have been begging for. Give us the long-range missiles that we can hit Russian artillery with. That is what we're asking for. That is good, that could have been saving lives here for, for the first month of war. But um, uh, I will tell you this. Uh, it's also uh, false to assume that Putin needs some technical reason for engaging into war with NATO. If Putin wanted a war with NATO, he would come up with a reason. That is a scary thought to embrace. But just trust me, if he wanted the war with NATO states, he would come up with a reason. He would say that you are a threat to, to, to Russian state, and then he will go into the Baltics, into, the, the po into Poland, and, and he will start the war. Because he didn't have a single reason to attack us. He is making reasons up as we go. First, he was saying that we are a threat because of the NATO bases being situated here which is again a BS because we never had any NATO bases here in Ukraine. Then he was saying that we are making chemical weapons here, which is again, non-true, but he's just making things See, up. See, I didn't hear the one about him saying that there are NATO bases Oh, they're, they're always, like, like if you look he at- He really? The, like, that is one of the major issues of the Russian propaganda. If you follow Russian news- Oh, that's what he's telling his people. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, to a very big extent. He's, Wow. Yeah, and uh, you remember when they uh, they bombed uh, uh, the um, uh, Ukrainian military base in Yavoriv, which is uh, near Lviv in western Ukraine? Uh, they were saying that this is the NATO base, uh, and of course there are some international trainings that are taking place there. But that is not nearly the same as saying that this is the NATO base, right? But that is what he's feeding to his people, like from the beginning of the war, and he's telling to his people that the reason why we attacked Ukraine is that if we didn't attack them they would have attacked us from those NATO bases. So that is just for you to understand the level of lies that he goes into. That well, what do you think about the people then? So, because so often another conversation is Ukrainians, and you tell me if I'm wrong about this, um, and I say this as somebody who talks to American media, as you do, about Ukraine, but I'm you know, an American, not Ukrainian, but um, <clears throat> people are saying, well, we are mad at Putin, you know, not necessarily the average Russian. Now, now what I hear yeah. as I walk, and I've been all around Ukraine, I don't have one Ukrainian friend or colleague who thinks that way. Yeah. They look at it as the Russian, the average Russian is equally responsible. Exactly. That's what I hear. Not one person has said it's just about Putin. And also, you know, and the word that I hear a lot in Russia, you know, you know, and just as far as the mentality and for those who don't, it's slavery. Um, but basically, there is this sentiment. Um, oh, and, and I'll finally say that one of my friends said Putin sent slaves to liberate free people. And so can you just talk about what your perceptions are about this concept of is this Putin versus the average Russian person? Because I think even if Putin hypothetically, if he were to fall, 
I personally believe that some of the same problems about anti-Ukraineness would exist. Yeah. Uh, well, thank you for that. I also like the quote a lot that he said, slaves to liberate the free people. That That's very good. I, I'm, yeah, I'm going to borrow that. Uh, but uh, that is very much true. And uh, it is also true that as of now, we had some recent polling done in Ukraine, which says that 98% of people believe Russia to be our enemy. And that includes all the Russians. You have to remember that 80% of Russians approve of this war. You have to remember that the atrocities being done here by Russian soldiers are not done just because Putin told them to come and conquer Ukraine. Okay, they can be given order to come and conquer, but they also come here and rape Ukrainian women. Like, what in the right, like, like can you imagine uh, soldiers from, I don't know, from United Kingdom coming to any states uh, trying to solve a conflict and raping women over there? That's just unacceptable. That is the, you know, barbarous people that we are talking about here. Like I've, I've read the story in, in the magazine about the, the rape case, and that's just terrifying what they're doing. Then they're also coming into the houses of Ukrainians, the soldiers, the regular soldiers, and, and they are like stealing stuff from there. Just today, I was listening to a conversation which was released by the Ukrainian intelligence, where they recorded a conversation between the Russian soldier here and his wife in Russia. And they were saying that we are leaving the, the cities around Kyiv. And uh, his wife said, okay, if you can go into any house and just steal me some clothes of this size and also a t TV station or, or something like that. This is the psychology of the Russians. Those are sick people. I'm sorry to say that. It can sound discriminatory for the Western audience, but you, have, you, you probably do not understand to what extent that society is sick. They're, they're completely out of their mind. We are hearing and we are reading on the social media because we, we can read Russia, of course, that when they hear about Russian soldiers being killed here, their mothers are saying, oh, we are so proud of our sons because they have been protecting us. We are, we are hating those Nazis in Ukraine. Tell us the people who send Ukrainians to the filtration camps. You know, they are sick. They're completely sick. And, and I mean, that doesn't mean that there are not like, there are like some... Uh, one person going to the streets to protest. Okay, one person in a 14 million city of Moscow. That is the percentage that you need to remember. Well, so what that. do you say to people who say, well, the rush, there are many Russians who want to speak out, but they are afraid of dealing with their police. They are afraid of going to jail. What What is your response to that? I don't care about what they are afraid of, because I'm afraid that the bomb will fall into the house where my son is staying. And that is nowhere near to the level of, of, uh, of fear that they can experience in Russia. If all the Russians go to the streets to protest, there will not be enough police to take them down. But they're not doing that because the absolute majority of them are actually supporting this regime. They are actually supporting the, the killings of the Ukrainians. They are okay with Russian politicians. Uh, there was this recent, um, like uh, one of the Russian uh, members of parliament said that, oh, I very much like the idea of building cities in Siberia where we can bring Ukrainians to denazify them. This is, sorry, this is the Nazi regime. This is what the Soviets were doing in the 30s with sending people to Siberia, you know, to re-educate them whatever, quote-unquote, of course. So so that is the, 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 the level of sickness that we're dealing with. It's not just Putin. It is the whole society that is sick. And we, it will take, I don't know, years to, to fix that society, even if, if Putin is, is down. You are absolutely right when you are saying that 
if Putin disappears, and we all hope for that to happen, we hope he dies, we hope he's killed, he's like, whatever. I want him dead so badly. I'm not like being diplomatic about that at all. But we realize that this level of hatred that they have towards Ukraine, towards the West overall, will not disappear. Probably that will mean that the active phase of the war will stop because Putin is, is the, has the level of control over the political elite that probably nobody else would have. So, so in order to proceed, someone else as strong as Putin will have to grab the power and consolidate it around himself. So I think that if he dies, they will change the situation for us, but not to an extent where we shall feel completely safe. Not, it would not be enough to say that, oh, now when Putin is gone, we can be friends with Russia. We never can be friends with those people anymore. You know, it's, it's, it's just impossible until they're completely fixed and they are, you don't know, brainwashed again in terms of, you know, becoming normal people. But they're sick. They're, they are, uh, I'm sorry, it's, it's uh, maybe not a very comforting thought, but uh, it is what it is. One of the things, one of the challenges right now um, that I see are people who are elderly. I mean, because I looked at some of your committees, you're part of, you deal with LGBTQ rights, all, a lot of these things, right? Um, a lot of things I see are people who are kind of left behind. Like um, I've helped some people to hopefully, you know, particularly people who are like uh, sick, you know, who actually need the care, right? You know, and particularly elderly people. Um, you know, like how, you know, and some of these people don't want to leave, right? You know, and so how is the government helping to support like the elderly people um, and people who have disabilities? Because it has to be a, a challenging situation. Well, unfortunately, uh, well, first of all, you have to realize that right now this resistance that everyone is so amazed with, it is not by the gov it is not being organized by the government. I mean, the government is part of the resistance movement, but this whole system of resistance that we are having is ex is extremely I don't know non hierarchical in nature. I think you are, like being here in, in Ukraine, you can see that there are volunteer organizations that are arranging for stuff. There are people who volunteer to go help people in Irpin get evacuated. I have a good friend of mine. He's actually like, he's, he has a PhD in physics and he's a, he's a scientist. And from the day one of the war, he was helping people evacuate from Irpin, which is amazing. I never thought that he would be doing that specifically him because you know, he's a nerd, typical nerd. I mean, he's great. He's, he's, uh, he's a famous blogger around academic circles, which is not a lot, but you know, but, but he's good. He's good in that sense, but I would never think that he would actually go into the, you know, zone of active combat uh, uh, action and help people get evacuated, but they're doing that. So, so it's important to understand that it's not the government. Uh, I mean, the government is doing its part of the job in terms of negotiating the humanitarian corridors and all. But we all, are, uh, you know, we as a society, we all have to take part in that because this this level of threat is so big that no no single governmental institution is prepared to respond to that. I mean, of course, there are the firefighters, right? They're putting the fire down. There is no one else who can be doing that. But in terms of humanitarian aid and support and relief, uh, it is being done by, by, by hundreds of people, thousands of people all over Ukraine, not because the government told them to do so, but because they found ways of being useful one way or another. And that is why they are doing that. And, and that is what Putin doesn't understand. And that is the crucial difference between Ukraine and Russia. Over here, we do have this, this part of the, uh, I don't know, um, and like anarchy was a big part of the Ukraine's political history in the in the 20th century. And this is what we are seeing to a very big extent right now. 
is people self-organize on different levels and they help uh, in, in many, you know, help each other. This self-organization, uh, which can seem chaotic, but precisely because it is so chaotic, it cannot be just, you know, broken. Because there is not a single person on top that you can just take down and it will all stop. Like, like there is no, like, like uh, even in terms of supply to the army, you know very well that there are so many volunteer organizations that are trying to help uh, the army, like get the protective gear, get the, you know, the medical supplies and everything like that. I mean, weapons is a different story. That is the governmental job. But in terms of everything else, like everyone is pitching in. And that is crucially important to understand that this is how this whole system and the resistance functions. It's not because Zelensky told us to do so. It's because we are, we we believe that that is what we need to be doing. What do you think about the, you know, some of the European um, partners' reactions, particularly Germany? Um, because you know, I actually did an episode that focused on Germany's relationship with Ukraine for for the podcast, and it's ironic the reactions and the way that they're responding to Russia's invasion against Ukraine, because. As of 19, up to 1989, they were occupied by the Soviets, right? So it's not the exact history, but a similar one, right? So how do you all navigate the very complex diversity of political thought in the European Union? Because they all are responding differently. I mean, we all know the Poles seem to be your biggest allies, basically. You know, but then you have. A, but they didn't give us the, the fighter jets also. Back. They didn't give you. No. Yeah, because the, th the thinking from the reporting yeah. is that they didn't want to directly give them to you. They wanted to give them to the United States yeah. and then the United States gives them to you. Right. As if Putin cares. Like, seriously, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm mad about this fighter jets issue. I'm like and I, I'm speaking openly about that. But in terms of Germany. Uh, that is, you are very much right about uh, this challenge of navigating very difficult, different reactions from the West. And I think we navigated by uh, speaking in single voice and just telling the truth and hoping that people will choose to be on the right side of history. I mean, for Germany, it would be good to be on the right side of history, at least for once. Uh, I think that uh, they should realize that uh, this is the level of threat to the humanity as Hitler was. And this is the level of threat where, you know, it's actually right, it, it's moral, morally right to be supporting us right now, even if that doesn't make economic sense. And we are just trying to, to provide more and more arguments to the politicians in Germany and explain to them that sometimes in these historic moments, you just have to choose the right side. And it is difficult for, for many reasons. Uh, many German politicians have very direct and close uh, ties with Russian politicians. We know their former Chancellor Schroeder has basically been working for Russia for years, right? And that's it's not only him, it's like whole political parties that have been very closely engaged with Russians. So, uh, France, yeah, yeah, exactly. So, uh, uh, yeah, France is also not an easy people to deal with. They have this, like in France, they have this uh, general Russophilia, I would say, because they, they have this idea of the big Russian culture or whatever. Yeah, I don't believe in that anymore because uh, as my boyfriend posted on, on, on Facebook on the day two of the war, he said like, like all, the whole Russian culture is not, it's worth nothing if it gave birth to this nation of bastards. 
that is that is uh, but but there are many people in europe who are saying like oh there is this russian culture well again it gave birth to this nation of, of bastards, so so I don't care about this, uh, you know, individual cases of uh, you know good writers in Russia. Uh, so we are trying to ne- navigate it by just telling the truth and uh, you know speaking to the very basic values of humanity, like explaining that. Imagine you are a mother and you have your child and you are staying in the bunker for ten days and you don't have water for your child and you are seeing your child dying from dehydration. In what way you can be supportive of that? You know, that is the way we, we navigate it. It's not an easy talk, but um, I think there are some things which are so black and white that even given the complexities of, of the relations with Russia, people actually understand and see that, that it is just a black and white situation. And what about um, moving forward um, right now? Um, if you were speaking to members of, let's say, the U.S. Congress, for example, right, um, because they're still working out ways through the Treasury to create more sanctions, um, what would you like to see in regards to additional sanctions? And also, um, I would guess that part of any peace that is negotiated, right, between Ukraine and Russia they would want the sanctions yeah. to end, right? They would want that, which I don't think is a good idea yeah. and shouldn't, right? Um, and so how would you want those negotiations to conclude with uh, the sanctions? Yeah, so first of all, the sanctions are important. I wish we had this level of sanctions we are seeing today in March 2014 when they annexed Crimea. If that were the West reaction in 2014, we wouldn't have had this full-scale uh, war right now. The West needs to understand that they need to react to the, you know, to the bully, and they need to react harshly, and they need to react fast. And unfortunately, we didn't see that reaction in, in 2014. And I'm sure if if that were the reaction in 2014, thousands of lives here would have been saved in 2022. But unfortunately, the West was keep on repeating this mantra, like, oh, we don't want to escalate. Uh, we have per- inc- introduced some sanctions after Crimea was annexed. Uh, but, you know, they were still buying gas from Russia and, and uh, you know, inviting Putin to, to different meetings and so on and so forth. He should have been punished much, much earlier. And the very fact that the West did not punish him earlier is the reason why he went further. For Putin, every time he hears the, the Western leader saying, oh, we don't want to escalate, he reads that as oh, I can go further, and I will go further, you know? So right now, in terms of the sanctions, I believe the condition for uh, taking the sanctions away needs to be one, and that would be the Russian army is completely out of Ukrainian sovereign territory, including Crimea, including Donbass. That is the only condition that we can discuss, because until there is a single Russian soldier on Ukrainian territory, they should be having more and more sanctions introduced daily. And that is what we're asking for. And of course, the Russians are now uh, more willing to negotiate because they want some of the sanctions you know, put down. But I think the reaction should be, as, as of right now, different. We can negotiate uh, not introducing new sanctions if you start withdrawing the troops. That should be the, the talk right now. But not like taking, you know, withdrawing some of the sanctions that have already been introduced. No, that, but, but what we're asking for right now is more sanctions daily. That is the only thing that they react to. 
Like, uh, and that is what we're asking for. Until there is a single Russian soldier on the ground, they need to know that there will be new and new sanctions coming their way. And that, and that is important, should include not just sexual sanctions or economic sanctions, but also an important issue of uh, personal sanctions. So personal sanctions are extremely uh, underestimated, I believe. But what I mean by personal sanctions, the children of Russian political elite who claim that they hate the West so much, all their kids are living in the United States, shopping in Italy, going on vacation to France. They should not be allowed to do that. All their visas should be cancelled. They should be kicked out of the universities in the UK that they are studying in. They should go back to Mother Russia up until there is not a single Russian soldier on the Ukrainian territory. So we are asking for those individual personal sanctions because they have much more direct effect onto people who are making decisions in Russia right now. You know, if uh, their children are not allowed to go to Europe, to the United States, then will that will hit them directly and very soon. Unlike the economic sanctions that will have effect in a year, two or three, you know. So that is what we're asking for. And as being somebody who studied in the United States, uh, you went to Berkeley. Yeah, I was a uh, Fulbright scholar. Fulbright scholar in Berkeley. Yeah, we're both uh, recipients of the Fulbright, you know, the Fulbright. And I'm curious, during your time at Berkeley, what did you learn about United States culture and just you know, in your education, but also what did you learn about our society, which, you know, is just very complex, yeah. right? And um, how does that inform your thinking as a lawmaker? Uh, oh, that, that's yet another issue to be, uh, we can do yet another podcast about that. Yeah, but, but um, yeah, yeah, but... Uh, Okay, you have to realize that I'm a university professor. Every time you ask me a complex question, I tend to give a lecture of one hour, 20 minutes. Uh, but I would say this, that uh, it, being in the United States and, uh, well, having many friends there and also following the news and all, I do understand that the United States is a very divided society. And we are seeing that in reaction to the war in Ukraine as well. And we are seeing how reaction to the war in Ukraine is being informed by the political positions of different political parties and and every time i'm given uh, interviews to the american media i can understand like okay this journalist is supporting this political party and this journalist supporting that political party and i find like knowing that context i'm trying to navigate and to explain that in this particular situation we can have our sympathies and our preferences uh, theoretically but at this point of time it doesn't really matter because we need the bipartisan support from the united states right now and and um, and that is what we are trying to explain all the time. Like bipartisan support, we are not intervening into your internal policy debates, political debates. But I also understand that it, those are very tough, and I understand that uh, the American society, as any society, does have its context uh, in which it, you know, the reactions are embedded into internal context, into historical context of previous engagements in military conflicts uh, all around the world. I do understand that that is. Uh, uh, that that is, uh, you know, playing a role as well. Like, I understand when, that in the United States, many people, when hearing now that there is a war in Ukraine and Ukraine is asking for a no-fly zone, many people are thinking, okay, we just withdrew from Afghanistan. We have been at war with, with the, you know, many other countries and that has not always been very successful. And there are many people who are saying that, oh, we shouldn't be getting into war anymore just because of those experiences before. Uh, knowing that, my job as, as a representative of the Ukrainian people is to explain that this is a different conflict. This is a different one, and this is the, the different types of threat. 
And this is a different type of engagement that we're asking for. And the reasons for why we're asking for this engagement is also different. It's not a you know gray zone where we're asking you to intervene on the side of one of the more or less gray sides. It's a black and white situation completely. And and yeah, I think that knowing and understanding American society probably a little bit better than someone who didn't live there. I'm just trying to find the right words to explain that to the American society. And my last question to you is how has this war changed you? And um, moving forward, because being in a war situation, I know for me personally, and I'm not even a Ukrainian person, but just living with the trauma of, you know, even though I'm not Ukrainian, uh, a but missile. The bombs exploding. Yes, yes, it, it doesn't matter because yeah. I'm here and I stayed here because this is a country I consider, you know, a home away from home. And I have many friends here who I consider to be family to me. And so just dealing with that trauma of knowing that a missile doesn't care that I'm not Ukrainian, it can, exactly. hit, it can hit me, right? I know that has changed my perceptions about many things, including Russia, <laughs> including Putin, namely. But what about you? How has this changed the way that you think about things now? And was it different before? I will say this, that on the personal level, I'll start with that and then on the political level, but on a personal level, um, I think you start valuing different things differently. Because like in the pre-war times, I was thinking like, oh, I want to have those uh, very nice shoes. <laughs> they don't matter anymore. I can't run in heels from bombs falling onto the streets, you know. So now I'm like, uh, but it's not only about those materialistic things, but right now, like the things I want most of all is to have a quiet night with my loved ones or go for a walk into the woods, which all need to be demined after the war, and that's another story. But those, you understand what is most important in life very, very quickly, and that is like being next to your loved ones. And that is something that we cannot have right now uh, during the war time. 44% of Ukrainians have been separated from their families, including myself. And I think that on a very personal level, this is what, how you reevaluate your previous life and you, you uh, that gives you very good priorities and about what is important in life um and that is like your loved ones definitely not the the material stuff not the you know the, the shoes i love my shoes but me too yeah, yeah. <laughs> but still uh, but you see mine oh yeah wow nice yeah i'm in my running shoes <laughs> and i'm showing her the my my blinged out converse by the way but yeah, anyway yeah, go yeah, ahead very, very Thank you. <laughs> Go ahead. Uh, but uh, on a political level, I would say this, that, uh, again, I will add to this, that uh, apart from being a member of parliament and a politician, I'm also teaching in the university for 11 years now. And I also teach uh, public policy and uh, well, political science. Uh, and I was thinking uh, in very little free time that I got since the day one of the war, but I was thinking like I should change the way I teach and I sh should change the way I operate as a politician. I mean, I've always, in what manner, I will explain this. I've always been rather radical in my positions. I mean, I was never supportive of this, like, let's compromise in policy decisions and all. I've always been rather radical. That is what people know me after. I think now I'm even more radical in terms of we need more radical change. We need more radical steps in order to rebuild this country in order to build a completely new society, in order to fight corruption even harder than we were in the last couple of years. 
and and I think on a political level that has that is what has changed in me. I mean, it, it wasn't like I was very moderate person before. I've always been rather radical in my uh, in my uh, proposals, um, be it in education sphere and energy sphere that those that I'm working on. But right now, I realize that that is that I was actually right. <laughs> I mean, that doesn't sound very good, but that that we should actually go for more radical steps. And I think that is how the society is changing as well. And we should also learn to prioritize things, and and we should put the priorities at security primarily. That is again the growing understanding here in Ukraine. And uh, again, we should not be afraid of doing something that uh, and will can be not very popular at the beginning, but we should just go for that. So that is what um, I think has changed politically in this country from the day one of the war. I'm really thankful that you took time to speak with me. And it's really interesting that we're having this conversation in a cafe um, right now. And these are decent mics. I, I hope they are um, because we are in a, um, a cafe and a lot of people don't know that in the midst of all of this chaos, there's some normalcy here that we actually are in a cafe and people are typing on their laptops. Um, it's just it feels surreal a bit, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. Yeah, it does. It. I mean, not all the cafes are open right now, but uh, yeah, uh, the first. I actually didn't. I wasn't in a cafe for the first month, I think. But then I have come here a week ago, and then today. And it, at first, it feels strange, like going to a cafe during the wartime. But then also, we should uh, fight for our normality in our lives uh, here. And I think just simple things like like grabbing a coffee and meeting some friends is. Uh, you know, part of, of fighting against Putin as well. Yeah, thank you for giving me your time. Thank you for having me. Thanks. Thank you very much for listening to this week's episode of Black Diplomats. We'll continue covering the Russian invasion for as long as it's taking place, which, of course, we all hope won't be for too much longer. I'll be interviewing more experts about Russia's aggression, how Ukrainians are fighting back, as well as the international response. And we'll be talking to common folk um, who've been fleeing this war and a whole bunch of other good stuff. So if you like this episode, the best thing to do is to head on over to my Twitter timeline and support us financially via Cash App, Venmo, and PayPal. You'll see a pinned tweet at the top of my timeline. Also, go on over to iTunes and give us a five-star rating. Trust me, it helps a whole lot. All right, that's it for now, y'all. Talk to you next week. Slava Ukraina. Glory to Ukraine.